whatever in some other state or some other neighborhood or some other city. So a, a sales contingency is something that we rarely see um, uh, in, in our market, but in a if, if you're in a really heavy buyer's market, that could be something that you could um, get the other side to agree with. Agree with. Um, the, the mortgage contingency basically says, look, if I'm not able to get a mortgage, um, the, the mortgage that I, that I need from the bank, if I'm not able to, to get the amount of money that I need from the bank, then I can exercise my mortgage contingency and back out of the deal and get back my 10% contract. Yo, what is up? This is Christian D. Evans, host of Journey with Christian D. Evans podcast. And I just want to share with you real quick. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. It really means a lot to us, but also our community. And, you know, if you like this, please share this with your friend, your family, a colleague, someone that you don't even like. Definitely share that with them. And then also leave a comment and a review for us. We really do appreciate that. And show our guests some love if you find that this episode really resonates with you. Secondly, also want to share with you some really awesome news. I've had the Fortune Opportunity Network and have incredible guest, eight and nine figure entrepreneurs, CEOs and founders on our podcast. And what we've done is we've actually been able to open up a be uncommon if you can mastermind where we're able to open up the door for so many of you, right? Those that are six figure, seven figure entrepreneurs that are scaling, that are struggling, that really want to level up their game, their business, their life, whatever it is. I'm able to open up that door for you with this Be Uncommon If You Can Mastermind. Now, we're only taking a select few of individuals. So what you'll need to do is go to christiandevans.com forward slash mastermind dash now. And the link is actually in the description as well. Guys, that is christiandevans.com forward slash mastermind dash now. We're only opening this up for a select few of individuals that really want to level up their game. You have a conversation with me. See if you qualify. And guys, enjoy the episode. And remember... Be uncommon if you can. Cheers. Thank you so much for tuning into Journey with Christian D. Evans podcast. I'm your host, Christian D. Evans. And let me ask you guys, if Trump is the king of negotiation, then today we have the emperor of negotiation. My gracious guys, I'm so excited having this individual on. He is the expert in the field and practice of collaborative negotiation, an instructor and coach teaching negotiation techniques, strategies, and best practices to real estate professionals. A 16-year veteran of the residential real estate market in NYC, New York City, and he currently teaches nationally for the Real Estate Negotiation Institute and work as an agent for Brown, Harris, Stevens, and Manhattan. He has been featured in numerous publications, and it is my guest today, Eric Davey, Gislason. How you doing, my man? Hey, Christian. I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. It's a, it is a pleasure to be in front of your audience and to be speaking with you today. I am a big fan of the podcast, so thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Well, thank you for uh, as well jumping on. And I'm really excited about diving into a lot of the negotiation side of things because, I mean, we've all heard of it and you really definitely need negotiation skills. But what I like to do is not really ask the, the why it's important, but let me ask you just straight up, what do you see in people doing wrong when they go to the negotiation table? That's a great question. And that's oftentimes where you need to start is what, what, are, the, what are the mistakes that we are making um, when we approach a negotiation? And, you know, as I, I've heard some of your other guests mention Chris Voss, who wrote Never Split the Difference. One of my favorite negotiation quotes is his. And he says that the, the most dangerous negotiation is the one you don't know you're in. And the reality is, is that we are always negotiating. And so, 
preparation and having a strategy and having a having tactics and having a strategy are incredibly important. And so often we find that negotiators enter a negotiation shooting from the hip, just kind of winging it and, uh, and trying to, to navigate on the fly. And they're doing so with their past negotiations in mind. They're doing so with this idea that I've been here before and uh, I know kind of how this goes. I know the path. It's kind of like I've, I've climbed this mountain before and it's going to look exactly the way it looked the last time I climbed the mountain. And we all know that's just not true. And so when you're not planning, when you're not strategizing, and when you're not taking the other side's interests uh, uh, to heart or in, in mind, uh, that's a huge mistake for negotiators. So when you're saying that, kind of dive into it a little bit further. So, you know, um, I look at it as like a sales call, right? Sales calls, mm-hmm. if you really want to dial in that skill, it is it is a script, but also it is a tonality. It is an art. It is a science. It is a matter of asking the right questions to facilitate certain emotions. And I look at the same kind of situation as negotiation, right? It's an mm-hmm. art and a science a little bit. And so my question is, you know, do you do you control the conversation through questions and getting them to, you know, ask their, you know, answer certain things the way you want to answer because you already know the result that you're going to you want or what does that look like well so another one of my favorite quotes is is from negotiation genius by deepak mohaltra and max bazerman and they say negotiation is an information game so to your point it is about gaining information it is about gathering information and i call this the unsexy part of negotiation it's about asking questions using active listening skills testing for understanding, summarizing information. That's what a skilled negotiator does. And they do that, studies show, about 40% of their overall negotiation. That's what a skilled negotiator is doing, is listening and asking questions and testing for understanding and summarizing information. So yeah, a big part of what it takes to be a skilled negotiator is what I call being ceaselessly curious. It's taking, it's putting ourselves back in our five or seven-year-old body where and they say that you know the most skilled negotiator there is is a five-year-old child. Why? Because they're relentless with the questions that they ask. They know who's got what they want, and they will not cease until they get it. Um, and they don't have that filter. And and oftentimes, what we end up doing as adults is we start to build up this filter, and we start to decide that we're being too too intrusive, or the question seems a little bit like it's inappropriate to ask. And we need to understand how to reframe our questions, how to ask both closed and open-ended questions, hypothetical questions, but find ways to be strategic about the way we ask questions so that we can gather as much information as we can um, and then test for understanding to make sure that we heard it right, go to third-party experts and make sure that we are verifying that information. And the more information that we glean, the more information that we have, the better we are going to be at what, as a collaborative negotiator, as what what we call uh, uh, setting up exchanges. The more I understand about the other side, the more I can frame them in and understand where the possible deal is, then I can start to look at what's important to them and look at what's important to my side and start to uh, understand where there could be some value to be created in the transaction. And that's what collaborative negotiation is all about. It's, it's about creating value before you claim value. It's, it's about growing the pie, which is what one of my blogs that I write is called Growing the Pie for that reason. It's about understanding how the, the it's not a fixed pie. 
We can add value in a transaction by understanding that people value things differently. And if I know what you want, I know what's important to you, and I can be very subtle about and, and protective about what's important to me, then I can be the one who identifies an exchange and exchange something that's of low value to me, that's of high value to you, and take and extract more, uh, more value for my side. So I want to build a bigger pie, and I want to take as much of that pie as I can. And that makes perfect sense. So let me ask you, like, what are certain tactical questions that someone could ask that facilitate the right answer that you're looking for? What does that look mm -hmm. like? Well, you know, I, I mentioned one, which, which is hypothetical questions. Hypothetical questions can be really, really helpful in negotiation. It's, it's that idea of, of um, uh, if, suppose that or what if. What if I were to tell you, or suppose that my client were to X? So you take, and what, what hypothetical questions do is it takes, it takes the, the, uh, the questioning out of the specific situation, and it allows the other party to be a little bit more creative or a little bit more forthcoming with their answers, because you're not saying, would your client do this? Or my client will do this. You're saying, what if, or suppose that? And those magic words can really open up a lot of doors. I also mentioned closed-ended versus open-ended questions. I mean, we, you know, open-ended questions are great for gathering a lot of information. So, so we advocate for asking open-ended questions. As Chris Voss again says, the what and how questions, right? Those questions that you're, you're trying to get to, quote unquote, the why, but you ask those questions with what and how. How should I understand this? Or what, what, what should I take from this? And those, are, those what and how questions are open, generally require an open-ended response, as opposed to, would your client take this price? Would your client take that price? Those are closed-ended questions, which also have their, 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 their part in questioning. You, when you want to gain compliance, you want a closed-ended question. When you want to gain information, you want an open-ended question. So with this, and is, this is so interesting because I, I, I relate it so much to sales because, you know, just the same way there's just so much um, information regarding sales structure. And at the beginning, you know, you want to build rapport and then obviously kind of ask certain questions, pain, mm -hmm. identify the pain, facilitate it, identifying your, your solution, explain that whole process. Like there's a whole, a whole sales structure. So my question, Eric, is do you find that it's very similar? There is a negotiation structure. It's like, okay, at the beginning, this is what you should do. Then two thirds down, you're, hey, you, you want to build more of asking questions identifying the pain. I'm just curious. I'd love to get your yeah. response on that. Yeah, there is a structure. And, you know, I, I when I was teaching, when I was a, a, a director of sales and development for a real estate firm before I went back into the field, you know, one of the things that I would teach is the, you know, the four points of any sale. You know, you want, you want to educate, build rapport, um, qualify, and close, right? Well, we as negotiators, we, we take those same first few. We want to qualify. We want to ask questions. We want to educate. We want to build that rapport. It's very important that I have the other side's interests in mind. Um, so, yes, so, so a lot of those things are similar. There is a structure. With the Real Estate Negotiation Institute, um, we have a structure we call, we call the ACE methodology. And the way that that works is it's not linear, but it's like, it's like overlapping circles. It's like a Venn diagram. And the ACE planning guide is A-C-C-E. And the first A is anticipate issues and accumulate information, right? So, it's, so it's the, you're, you're basically asking questions. You want to find out in the negotiation space for real estate agents, let's say, 
I want to understand what is it that my client knows about purchasing an apartment? What is it that they know about real estate professionals? What is their experience with real estate professionals? I want to do a power balance assessment to understand what power we have. Do we have market power? Do we have walkaway or BATNA power, as, as Harvard calls it, the best alternative to negotiated agreement? Do we have sound logic power, knowledge and expertise power? So there are several sources, primary sources of power. I want to do a power balance to understand what our power is. I want to know what my client knows, what they want, what they need, what their experience has been. So all of that is accumulating information. And then I want to do that with the other side, assuming I'm already engaged in a negotiation. I want to do that same evaluation with the other side and try to create that frame around the other side so I know where the possible deal is. Um, and then the second, the, so that's A. The C is create value. So that's where I talked about this idea of growing the pie. So once I've accumulated information and I'm always anticipating issues, just like the, just like the Sherpa on a mountain climb, right? I'm always looking for a crevasse that wasn't there, a weather pattern that shows me that we shouldn't leave base camp. I'm always anticipating issues um, as, as the deal's going on. But the, set, the C is create value. I'm starting to look at, it, at identify those exchanges. Where can I give things of low value and extract things of high value? And then the second part is claiming value. So once you've, the second C is claiming value. Once you've uh, uh, created the value, you see where those, those exchanges can be identified, then you wanna claim value and you wanna negotiate the entire package. The mist another mistake negotiators make is they start to negotiate one thing at a time. And what that does is it, 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 it really, you lose power in that, but it also allows the other side to do what's what we call nibbling, where they start to just take little things here and there, here and there. So if you negotiate the entire package, that's where you claim value. And then the E is execute contract. That is the, that's where it becomes a project management, so to speak, where we are, we are looking at key milestones. We are keeping an eye, we're still anticipating issues, but we're keeping an eye on all of the, the, uh, the contract dates and the expectations along the way so that we don't run into a problem where on the second or third or fourth negotiation of that deal, we are ending up giving back some of the things that we've gained. So I like this because what you're saying is you do not want to nitpick. Now, what I'm also noticing is what I, you know, when you're working with someone that is not really that good at negotiating, right, it's very easy to ask questions and control the conversation. It's almost like B2C, right? Yeah. Uh, kind of, you know, sales process. Mm -hmm. But also when you start running into more of the B2B world and you've got some individuals that are familiar with like the sales and the negotiation process, mm -hmm. how, I'm just curious, Eric, how do you approach that, right? It's just dependent upon that level of that caliber of that individual that you're working with. And some individuals I've, I've talked to that are really, they know they've been there, they got a lot more reps in negotiation deals than mm -hmm. I do. And obviously how do you um, make sure that you, um, come in with your kind of radar on and say, okay, you know what? I still want, I know what's going on and I don't want to be taken advantage of or vice versa. Yeah. Uh, that's a great question as well. I mean, the, the reality is, is that we have to measure up our counterpart in any negotiation. That's one of the first things we want to do is we want to look at the other party and say, what, what style are they bringing to the table? Are they a collaborative negotiator? Are they a competitive negotiator? Or are they a compliant negotiator? Compliant negotiators, you can pretty much take what you want. The risk that you run with a compliant negotiator is whoever they are representing, whether they're, they're representing themselves or whether they have a client behind them, that somehow at some point in that negotiation at the 11th hour, there's that 
oh, what are, what are we doing? Or what are we giving away? Oh my God, they're getting everything, we're getting nothing. And so with a compliant negotiator, you just have to keep an eye to make sure that they're adequately satisfied throughout the transaction by giving them a little nugget. And that nugget doesn't ne necessarily have to be something of, of huge value. It can be a compliment. It can be a kind word. It can be just checking in with them and, and really being communicative with them. That's really sometimes all it takes to satisfy a compliant negotiator. But if they're a competitive negotiator, you may run into those hard bargaining tactics. They may, they may really come loaded for bear and, and, uh, uh, and coming at you. And so you wanna know what style they're bringing to the table so that you can identify their tactics as Harvard calls it, name it to tame it. You wanna call out the tactic for what it is. Um, and and make them change their tactics because you know as as we all know tactics are not a strategy tactics are useful tactics are necessary but they're not a strategy so a lot of times when I'm dealing with a competitive negotiator and in the real estate world in New York City there are a lot of them um, but when I'm dealing with a competitive negotiator it's really about identifying them naming the tactics that they're using and forcing them to change tactics. And if they don't have a good sound strategy and it's just firing off intimidation tactics and hard bargaining tactics to try to move the ball a little bit or get me to do what they want, they're gonna find that they've, they, they're, they're in the wrong place. I'm not gonna be that person. Um, and so, so identifying a competitive negotiator is important. And then identifying a collaborative negotiator. Look, when I find a collaborative negotiator um, uh, out in, in my world as in, in, in real estate, um, I'm happy to see them. Now it's really a chess match, right? I, I want to start to identify what's important to them, hide what's important to me, try to see if there are ways that I can give them little things, if I can be better at them at identifying uh, or extracting that information and finding out what their pain points are, what they really need. Is it a timing issue? Is it a price issue? Is it a down payment issue? Whatever it is, I can identify what the real pain point is and then force them or encourage them uh, to give them, give me the things that I want in order to satisfy that need. And that's that's where that growth of the pie comes in. Is I I'm not I'm not interested in rubbing their face in the dirt. That's not my goal as a negotiator. I I, I want them to be adequately satisfied, but not at the expense of giving value unduly away on my side. I want to identify what they want, and if I can. Get it, give it to them in exchange for things that are really important to me. Yeah, what I like your, about your approach, Eric, is really just coming into a conversation and you have clarity on what you want. But then, like you said as well, it's about communication. Because yeah. so many times we have this assumption, definitely if you're talking about you know, acquiring a business or even working with you know, uh, you know, kind of negotiation, even real estate, right? You see, okay, maybe this individual, why are they selling this house? Okay, why are they looking to sell that? Okay, get to know the story. Oh, wow, you're yeah. moving down to Florida? Oh, that makes sense. Oh, that's awesome. What are you guys doing in Florida? Is it a job change? Oh, so you guys looking to sell it really quickly then. Okay, gotcha. Now, you know, what's that price? Are you willing to, you know, and you ask certain questions to understand the story like you said uh and then like you said it's like okay what do they really want well i just want to get out of this house i don't really care it just i don't want to you know fix anything up i just want to get out of it cool wonderful we can do that now what happens is you just understand everything like you said you gather enough data to then be able to leverage it and find that right individual um which i find so interesting uh, now let me ask you this because you know like you said there's, there's this concept where it's more collaborative and i like your approach in that regard mm -hmm. but when you see at what point do you come off a little bit, you know, hey, we want to get this deal done and let's get it done. And you got to turn the dial up a little bit, like a little yeah. heat up, 
When, when do you do that? Absolutely. And we call this the negotiator's dilemma. The reality is, I like to say when I'm teaching my courses, collaborative negotiation isn't holding hands by the fire, swaying back and forth and singing kumbaya. That is not what collaborative negotiation is about. I am trying to maximize the gain for my side. And I need to be assertive and cooperative, right? I, th this, is not, this is not just about being um, uh, about, about giving away value so that everybody's happy, being a people pleaser. I am advocating for my client. I want to gain as much as I can. And the negotiator's dilemma says, look, we as collaborative negotiators, we don't look at competitive tactics as necessarily bad. They are not necessarily bad. All they, they're a tactic and that's all they are. And if I know how to defend against them, great. But I also need to know how to use them. I need to know when it's time to, to push the other side back a little bit. When it's time to use silence um, as, a, as, a, uh, as a negotiating tool. Um, whether it's time to uh, put a timestamp on something or to nibble a little bit. You know, if they're, if, if I get them in, if I get them uh, emotionally committed enough to a deal and there are still a few things left on the table, the more emotionally committed to the deal they are, the more likely it is that they'll give me that last little thing for nothing. And as a collaborative negotiator, I'm not immune to using those tactics, but I want to do it when it's right. And when it and when it's the situation suits it, because, you know, taking bluffing, for instance, as a as a competitive tactic, we all bluff, we all bluff. The question is, what is the risk reward of that bluff? And the, the more intense that bluff is, the, the higher the risk is and maybe the higher the reward as well, but the higher the risk. And the question is, are you, are you negotiating for yourself? Are you negotiating for your business? Are you negotiating for shareholders? Are you negotiating for a client? Who's behind? Who are you representing? And what is their risk tolerance when, when you get to that point? So you have to understand that when you're about to use a competitive tactic. But there's no doubt about it. When I, when I get engaged with a competitive negotiator, I know that there may be a time and likely will be a time when I need to, quote unquote, take the gloves off a little bit. Well, let me ask you, because see, one of the things I, whenever I go to the negotiation table, I tend to, and, and the, the, the culture is, is changing a little bit. So like, for example, real estate, right? It used to be the buyer and seller. They would have some sort of conversation. Now they don't. I, I'm talking about real estate, right? Mm -hmm. It's the agent that facilitates that. And so, and so my, my point is, though, is it's, you lose the lack of emotion. And sometimes the emotion is what allows you to kind of you know, a little bit play off on it to be able mm -hmm. to kind of get what you want and kind of facilitate that uh, the best agreement in, in, in your perspective. So yeah. I'm curious now with things are changing and sometimes negotiation take several months or several weeks or whatever it looks like. Um, what is What are certain strategies that you could still use the leverage, even though you may not be, hey, I'm in a room, it's getting, you know, it's getting intense, and hey, we're going to be walking out here and negotiate, you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's, it's just different now. So I would just love to get your response to what, what you're seeing. It is, it is different. You're right. And, it, and, you know, there are still some parts of the country where they, they will present an offer, it, you know, speaking in the real estate space again, space again. they'll present an offer um, in person with the buyer and the seller. In my market, you know, when I when I mention that in my classes, although it's a great hail mary and it could be the great way to try to, if you have very little power, 
a great way to try to find a way to create that emotional connection with the counterpart or with the, the other side and the negotiation. So there is a place for it, but it's certainly not done that frequently. And, and uh, agents kind of, they, they protect their client from the other side and they, and on, on some level they're protecting themselves from introducing their clients into the, into the negotiation. But from a strategy standpoint, I want to know, I want to try to understand the right brain component of the other side. You know, I want to understand the emotional component of the other, the count, my counterpart and their client in a negotiation, because then I can bring that back to my client. So it's not, I don't want to eliminate it and, and have this veil where there is no emotion because we are emotional beings. We are, you know, as they say, the, the purchase decision, it's our, the, the, we, we make the purchase decision with our right brain on an emotional side. We, we, we uh, confirm, verify, or, um, uh, or move forward with that sound logic, the left brain side. So I want the emotional component in it. And I want to extract that information from the other side so that I understand what the, what, Side, what parts of that negotiation, what value elements of that negotiation do fall within that that uh, emotional side? I want to make sure that on my side, the other side, I want to protect my client from the other side knowing what they're emotionally committed to. Um, but uh, but that's the benefit of being a good negotiator. I can I can hide the emotional component on my side while trying to get that information by being ceaselessly curious to the other side. What I find so interesting, uh, definitely like in sales, and I always like to like, you know, make these similarities a little bit because it helps my brain process. But like whenever I'm on a sales phone call, I do a lot of research on that person. And what's so beautiful about today's world, you have so much information, right? Oh, hey, I just saw that your 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 brother had a birthday. Happy birthday to him. That's really, you know, that now all of a sudden the rapport just goes tremendously yeah. deeper. But also what's nice is you also, when you're to go to negotiation, oh, I know this person just filed for divorce with his wife. So naturally he's looking to, you know, like you just know yeah. and have these assumptions or whatever, right? Uh, and I'm just talking about like that specific situation, but hey, I know uh, that this individual is in pre-foreclosure or whatever it may be, right? And mm -hmm. so you're able to come in and say, hey, you know what? I know you're looking to sell relatively shortly and you're in a time, time you know, situation. Um, my question to you, Eric, is when you're looking at negotiations, right? And everybody is, is okay with saying, okay, I'm going to walk away. It's okay, right? Become non-emotional in that decision, right? Mm -hmm. It's okay to walk away and move on because as we have seen definitely with other big deals and so forth, sometimes that comes down, that, that idea or that opportunity comes down the road, six, eight, 10, 15 months down the road, and all of a sudden yeah. it might be a better deal. And so uh, give me an example of maybe a client that you worked with or you know what you're seeing or maybe even yourself where, hey, I had to walk away. It took a lot of energy. It took my emotion right? I had to pull back, but guess what? That opportunity presented itself down the road a lot better. Yeah. And to your point, you have to have, you have to have, have set goals. You know, the, the, I mentioned the Harvard program in negotiation, which is one of, one of the, the best in, in the world, but Wharton um, is also a great program. And one of the things that they say is your strongest source of power is your, is goal setting. You've got to be firm with your goals. You've got to understand what you want, and what, what achievement looks like to you. You can, you can change the goals throughout if, you, if, if there's a reason to do it, but you wanna be very mindful of it. You wanna be very intentional about it, but um, you wanna have set goals. So that way, if the other side is not meeting your minimum goals, 
that you don't feel sucked into this emotional um, uh, quagmire or this emotional roller coaster where you're agreeing to something that that doesn't fit your needs. And so when you do have those preset goals, walking away, it, 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 it considerate silence, as we call it, is not a competitive tactic. That can be a very collaborative tactic. You keep the door open. You say to the other side, look, it doesn't look like we are, we have a meeting of the minds here. You may be trying to test a bluff on their side. Maybe you know, maybe you know that there's something, as you said, you know, uh, you've, you've done your research, you know what their pain points are, you know what they're facing, you know what their situation is. And maybe you know that, that there's a better deal for you here than they're indicating. And you're saying, I'm going to call their bluff here. And even if they, if they, even if they shut down and say, okay, great, walk out the door, um, then you're still adhering to your minimum goals. And you're saying, look, we're not going to close the door. I'm not going to slam this thing shut and, you know, and, and scream and yell on my way out because that's going to be a sure way for them to, to, to lead to entrenchment or retreat. And even if it's in their best interest, they say, I'm not going back to Christian and offering him a better price because of the way that he ended this last negotiation. I'm done with him. And I don't want that. I want to leave that negotiation and say, look, you know, if there's in the future, if there's a way to get this done, we have our minimum goals. And so far, we're not meeting those goals. So we're going to take a little bit of a break. We're going to explore our BATNA. We're going to explore our other opportunities. And the and what Harvard says is the better your BATNA, the stronger you are. That's your that's your strongest or your most important source of power. If I have something really good, very if I have a very strong plan B, then that allows me to set those goals a lot more firmly and say to the other side, no, I'm sorry, 950,000 isn't gonna do it for me. I'm gonna walk over here and I'm gonna exercise plan B. When the other side knows all of a sudden that you've got a very strong plan B, now their question is how strong is their plan B? Who's got the better BATNA? Who is in a stronger position to leave this negotiation? And that can be a very powerful tool. So when you say to them, we're not meeting my minimum goals, we're gonna explore plan B, we're gonna leave this negotiation for a while, then the question is, how badly do they want that deal? And they may come back to you and say, you know what, we're ready to do this. And I had this, you know, you asked for a, 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 an example, I had this in a townhouse deal in, in, in Brooklyn that I recently did. And it was a situation where they had another deal on the table. It was clearly shaky. I asked a lot of questions. I understood that what they were getting from that deal wasn't what they wanted. But what they, what they wanted from us was essentially to do a lot better than what they had on this current deal. I could tell that what they had was, was not nearly what they were asking from us. And we said politely, thank you very much. Look, if anything changes, um, we're, we're here to, to, to have this conversation. We would really love to purchase this apartment or this house, this townhouse. We'd love to purchase this townhouse, but we're not meeting our minimum goals right now. So let's take a little bit of a break. You come back to us when you're ready. And within a day, they're back to us and they're now trying to bridge the gap. There's a zone of possible agreement. They know there's a zone of possible agreement. And now we've made them come down to the, to the low end of their ZOPA. And we are, and we are now um, um, able to get a better deal for us because we, we gave them a little bit of space to think about it and exercise the fact that we have options. Um, so so that's, you know, that's a good example for you. Well, one of the characteristics I, I think, and, and this is just what you're reiterating, is patience. You must have to have patience and say, yeah. you know what, I don't need this deal is not going to make or break me. 
it's okay if it goes through or if it doesn't and having that perspective. But yeah. let me ask you, what other characteristics should you go into or should you have to when you go into a, a, uh, a negotiation? Obviously, patience is one. What else would you suggest? Well, if you're negotiating for, let's say that you're negotiating for someone else, um, you want to make sure that you understand what their goals and their objectives are. And you want to make sure that your ego, first of all, is not getting in, in, in the middle of your negotiation. This is not about you. This is not about your ego, your win. You are representing a client. You're advocating for a client. And you want to make sure that you understand whose interests that you're, you're advocating for. Um, so when you're negotiating for someone else, you want to be very, very clear about that so that when the, so that the decision to walk away or the decision to take or leave a deal does not become an emotional one, especially for you as the negotiator. This happens quite frequently. In, in business, negotiators are far more skilled than they are in real estate. And this is why I teach real estate professionals collaborative negotiation. They need this training because they often are shooting from the hips. They don't get the professional um, uh, negotiating training through their company or through school, through a, an, ex, an advanced degree that, um, that a lot of people do in business. They're, they are, they're going by experience or by the training that re they received from a mentor in the business and who God knows what training they had. So, um, so you know, this is, this is a frequent uh, issue in real estate where you've got someone who's negotiating through their own ego and through their own desire to win or their own fear of loss. Um, and that can cloud their their vision tremendously. Um, so so having ha understanding that, but also going into a negotiation with the mindset of I am going to try to create value here so that I can find a way to get a deal done that maximizes the gain for my side. That's what I want to do. So if I can go in and ask questions of the other side, um, understand what their interests are, identify the value elements on their side of the table. I already know them on my side of the table. And then I can come up with a zone. I can come up with a, what, I, what I believe their BATNA is. What is their best alternative to negotiated agreement? What do I believe the minimum price that they're willing to take is? Is there something else about their minimum price that, that is important to them, like customer loyalty? or, uh, or a some sort of a package deal that, that allows them to gain my business for a longer period of time or over time. It's not about one transaction. It's about um, a, a relationship that'll last over time, and they will um, achieve much more financially over time than they will if they just get me for that one deal. That may be where their interests lie. I want to understand that and then I want to frame that in. I want to kind of put a frame around what that zone of possible agreement is. And then my goal, if I'm on one side of the deal, um, I want to get the, the, the price or the terms as low as possible for my client. Or if I'm on the sales side, I want to maximize those price and terms and get them on the highest side of that ZOPA that I can. But that's another mistake a lot of people make in a negotiation is they, they look at it as this, this very nebulous or ambiguous or anything's possible. Well, that's not true. One side's got their, what they're willing to do, and the other side's got what they're willing to do. And if I can, the better I can be at identifying what that actually is, then I can identify that, that frame, I can identify that zone of possible agreement, and make it much more concrete about what we're dealing with. Is it 900 to 1.5 million, 900,000 1.5 million, or is it 950,000 to 1.05 million? And if the deal is going to get done between 950 and 1.05, there's a hundred thousand dollar 
zone of possible agreement, that's a much more, that's much easier for us to navigate than if we're just throwing out numbers like, like the deal could get done anywhere. Because we know that that's not true. Wow, that's an incredible insight. And so what have you noticed in this industry when you are working with post-negotiation? Let's say you go and walk through all that. And then obviously, hey, last minute, right before you sign, whether it may be two Mm -hmm. weeks later, you get all the things all set up. Then all of a sudden, someone decides to bring in one little thing. Or maybe it might just be yourself that comes in. Hey, you know what? I want to change this one little thing. Um, How do you handle that? But also maybe how do you deploy it effectively? And, and, you know, optimize that post-negotiation. Yeah. Um, so we call that tactic. That's a tactic. It's called the nibble. Um, and, uh, and it's a very widely used one in, in all forms of business. Um, and it's what we call a test tactic. And this is how you employ it uh, uh, in, a, in a way that's effective is that you, you use one nibble to test the other side to see what they'd be willing to give. The more emotionally they are committed to the deal, and I can ask those questions, I can find out how excited are they to sign this contract? How excited are they to get this deal done? As we get closer and closer, are they moving up the timeline? Are they rushing through due diligence so that they can sign on the dotted line? If I look through all of those things and I can see that they are very emotionally committed to this and my client wants one more thing, then I may say, may say to my client, okay, let's ask for this one thing, or let's ask for something smaller to begin with. Let's, let's identify a few things that we could nibble, right? Few, few things that we can take. Instead of going with the largest nibble, let's start with the smallest one and see how they react. And in some cases, that negotiator, if they're not skilled, they may say, okay, fine, just take it. And then if I'm a, if I'm a skilled negotiator, I go, okay, all right, great. They're, they're, they just let us take this one thing. They didn't even ask for anything in exchange. They didn't, they didn't fight back or, or they, didn't, they didn't put up any sort of uh, objection whatsoever. So now let's look for the second nibble. And maybe from there, we go to our largest nibble and say, oh, we also want this. And then we see, and they'll either maybe go, okay, this is it, take this, but nothing else. Or they shut us down or they just give it to us again. But that's, the, that's what's brilliant about the nibble tactic because it's a test tactic. There's very, very low risk to a nibble. The, the, the worst thing that could happen is they say no, or, or look, the worst thing that could happen is they blow up the entire deal over a nibble. But we know that that's very, very unlikely, especially if they're, more, if they're emotionally committed. So the worst that could happen is they just shut us down. The best they can ha- that can happen is that they indicate that they'll just let us keep taking, right? So look, as a, as a negotiator, if that's what's going to happen, I may employ that tactic. If I'm on the other side of it, I've got a few choices. One is to, to as, as I said before, name it to tame it. You say, look, I know what you're doing here. I've, I've seen this tactic. This is the nibble tactic. My child used this on me when they tried to get a second dessert last night. Like this isn't, you know, come on, what are we doing here? If you want to use this tactic, look, if, you, if this is something that's that important to you, so I, 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 I magnify the contrast of the, of the importance of that thing. So I say, look, if this is really important to you that you get the dining room table, then we're gonna ask in return that you give us and I ask for something of, of large value in return. So I can magnify the contrast of their nibble and that will either cause them to say, oh, you know what, forget about it, it's not that important. Or they identified it as, as important and I get more for it. So I exchange a nibble for a nibble. Worst case scenario, I say, look, 
if you're going to if you're going to continue doing this, if this is if you, you're asking for something, we can unbundle the negotiation. We can start over and rebundle the negotiation. That would be worst case scenario. As I say, look, let, I would threaten to start over, but that would be uh, an unusual position to take if it's just a nibble. More likely, I'll exchange something for it or just shut it down. Interesting, and, and I definitely know where you're coming from on that regard. Now, and and I love those approaches because see. Definitely when you're in the real estate industry or, you know, even acquiring businesses, you can pretty quickly realize this individual is emotionally invested into the, the, the deal. Mm -hmm. And when they're invested into the deal, it's going to swing your way. And that's when you start deploying, you know, some, some of those nibble tactic and say, hey, what else could I get from this? You know, uh, and you'll just be amazed, maybe whatever that looks like. Mm -hmm. um, uh, maybe a consulting, right? Hey, you know, um, you, we'll buy your business, but maybe you have to consult for us for 12 months or a succession or whatever. You have to yeah. be in that position. And uh, anyways, my point is you can get pretty creative with it. And that's what I love about negotiations. Now, I do always want to ask you this because definitely in the real estate industry, one of the things that I love the most when I go and take an offer, I always have some sort of contingency, right? I will buy this house if it is approved and uh, by by the real estate agent or approved yeah. by the um, the you know just kind of a, a synopsis of the the real estate. Uh, I'd love to get your perspective on what you what are the most effective contingencies and how to you know leverage them throughout the you know the the post post um, purchasing if you will. Yeah, having protections is is big in in any negotiation for any business deal, right? In in real estate, the typical ones that we see, um, especially in New York City or in in the New York area, are a mortgage contingency or a funding contingency. Um, uh, you'll sometimes you'll see a sales contingency, but in in a market like we're in now, that's very rare. Sales contingency would be, look, I'm if if I can sell my apartment, then I'm moving forward with this deal. And as you can imagine, as a seller, that's, a, that's giving up a lot of power to a potential buyer. So I don't, I don't really want to get into a deal where I'm re, I'm, our deal is relying on something that I have no control over in some other state or some other neighborhood or some other city. So a, a sales contingency is something that we rarely see um, uh, in, in our market, but in a if, if you're in a really heavy buyer's market, that could be something that you could um, get the other side to agree with. Agree with. Um, the, the mortgage contingency basically says, look, if I'm not able to get a mortgage, um, the, the mortgage that I, that I need from the bank, if I'm not able to, to get the amount of money that I need from the bank, then I can exercise my mortgage contingency and back out of the deal and get back my 10% contract deposit. So that is a, that's a pretty uh, typical contingency in our market. However, if you're in a market like, uh, you know, a hot market like Brooklyn, um, whether you're putting down 50%, 40%, or 20%, you may be in a position where the only way to compete with cash buyers or with other buyers who are uh, at a higher, uh, higher price point than you are or willing to pay more, the only way to compete with them in a highest and best situation may be to waive that mortgage contingency and take on that risk. And that's essentially what you're doing is you're, you're, you're alleviating the risk from the seller. And you're saying, look, no matter what happens, if the bank says no to me, I'm sticking with this deal, or I'm going to give you my, you know, I'm going to give you $150,000 uh, that you can keep. That's my contract deposit. If we can't get this to a closing. 
um, I'm willing to stick with the deal. Sometimes you have a buyer who has that amount of cash, so they're so the risk is very low to them. And sometimes you're dealing with a buyer who's putting 20% down who doesn't have the other 80%. So the question is, what is their risk tolerance and what are they really risking? I just did a close a deal recently with a 20% down purchaser in Brooklyn, and they waived their mortgage contingency. But what we did is we had our bank do the due diligence, go through underwriting as quickly as we could to get that deal um, uh, as, as close to bulletproof as we could. My buyers were both very secure in their jobs. They weren't worried about uh, losing their positions as, uh, uh, in, in, the, um, in their companies. We did the due diligence in the building and the building didn't have any concerns that we we're aware of. So the, la the last kind of piece of the puzzle was, will the appraisal come in? And we were paying above the asking price. If the appraisal doesn't come in, what is, what is the, the consequence for us? And in that case, the consequence is the, the bank will, will lend us 80% loan to value. So my buyer might have to come up with some additional down payment money, but, but it's not paying all cash for it. They had some money left over. They could do that. So we look through the risk and see, to see what it is what, what is, what is the real risk to us and what is the benefit? If we can, if we can make ourselves more attractive by, by beating out other potential buyers and waiving our mortgage contingency, if the seller sees that as an attractive offer, are we willing to take on that risk? And my buyers were and everything worked out just fine. So, um, and then the last one, I mentioned a funding contingency. We rarely see this as well. You know, that goes all the way to the closing. The, 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 uh, the mortgage commitment is satisfied when you get a commit or the mortgage contingency is satisfied when you get a commitment letter from a bank. The funding contingency says if the bank at the closing table won't fund the loan, you'll, you can still back away from the deal. So way all the way until the closing, you are protected. And we, the, we rarely see that. When we saw that was at the beginning of the pandemic. And those buyers, because we are, you know, our market was shut down, buyers, sellers were sitting on the market. If they didn't already have a deal in place, nobody could show their apartments. And if they had a sales contingency on another property, or if they were doing a 1031 exchange or something where they needed to sell, then they needed to get creative. And some, some of the buyers who were concerned about losing their job because of COVID layoffs or getting COVID, um, they would carve out either a, a funding contingency or some sort of other creative contingency to protect the buyer in the event that they couldn't close. But that's one that we rarely see. But it's always good to have those protections. See, what, what you're basically saying, and, and I love this because that's why I, I find it so interesting, because before you actually accept a contingency from a partner that you're negotiating with, you have to do a lot of your due diligence and say, hey, you know what, is this, because you don't want to walk through that whole negotiation side of things that we just discussed. And then at the end, you have this contingency and you realize that that individual is not even qualified. They don't even have the money. They don't have the investments. They don't have right. things dialed in on their back end. And so then obviously that holds you up for three, six months, whatever it may be. Uh, and so you don't want to be in that situation. So I like what you're saying in regards to like making sure you do your due diligence on the front end, because then you'll be okay with those contingencies if you already know that, hey, they're already qualified. They've got the money. They're already invested. They already got those certain certifications, whatever. Um, yeah. And it's also really appreciative to kind of understand, like, obviously, certain most common uh, contingencies you will see, um, you know, in, in that in that industry. Now, I would like to get your perspective. A huge deal that's going on, billion-dollar deal. Mm -hmm. You've got Elon Musk buying Twitter. 
And uh, obviously what's interesting about this whole deal as it's pushing out is naturally uh, he, he, he said, this is what I'm willing to do. Wonderful. The board accepted that. However, though, as they're starting to you know, unfold kind of the metrics on the back end, more data is coming yeah. in. They're starting to realize uh, a lot of this is not really as valuable as we may think it is. Uh, what I mean by that is obviously the user. Um, how many users Twitter actually consists of and how many of them are just bots. And obviously that's going to affect the price and, and that, that, that deal. And obviously Elon Musk has the, the upper end, an upper hand. However, though, I'd love to just get your perspective on most current trends right now, what you see going on. And do you think that, you know, um, any things that tips that well, Elon Musk should implement? Yeah. I, so first of all, the, the that's a, the 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 kind of the the multi-party negotiation that that's a really fascinating different negotiation because you can as you can imagine if you're negotiating and you've got um, uh, several shareholders several stakeholders that are all a part of this deal and decision makers um, now all of a sudden the question is how do you minimally satisfy some of these related third parties and how do you adequately satisfy those who are the decision makers on either side? So it really becomes a really fascinating negotiation when you see someone who's skilled at saying, I'm not, I'm not going to power through and try to bulldoze just the one person, because I know if there, if there are four other people, even if they have a minimal voice, they could scuttle this entire deal. They could completely upend this, this deal. So I need to make sure that I'm always keeping an eye on all of the stakeholders and understanding um, who's involved and what voice they have. So, the, so that that's one really fascinating thing about, about these, these negotiations where especially it's a large purchase like this. The other thing is, you know, I have a hard time believing that Elon Musk was not doing his due diligence when he put his first number out there, knowing that he was gonna say, okay, now I'm gonna go in. And now that we've agreed quote unquote, without, without agreeing to something um, contractually, agreeing in principle, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to put your money where your mouth is and really defend the value of this company. And if I don't see the value, now I'm going to start chipping away. It's, it, it's, not a, you know, it's not dissimilar to someone who walks into a house and says, okay, great, I want it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay you 900000 for it. And then they go, oh, do you mind if we come back one more time for a visit? And then they walk in and they see the scratch on the floor, the nick on the wall, and they start to, to discount, right? So, and, it, and it, sometimes that is a, an emotional driven purchase. And then the, the left brain comes in and says, wait, 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 I got to think about this. I've got to really be uh, logical about this. But in another way, it's a tactic. It's a strategy where you go in and say, okay, great. I've, I've gotten you committed to a deal now. It's not, a, not dissimilar to a nibble, right? I've got you committed to a deal. Now I'm gonna look under the hood and tell you what I really think it's worth. And then we'll see how desperate you are to do a deal. And so I, you know, I think on, on one level, I think there's a lot of game, gamesmanship going on here. Um, it really will come down to, it'll come down to a couple things on one level, if the both sides get frustrated with each other, and you, you saw this it, to take another deal, you saw this with Amazon coming to Long Island City, Queens in New York City, where you just got to a point where both sides had their stands, they had their, they put their stake in the ground, they had their positional bargaining, and they were not interested in the areas, the concern of the other side, the areas of concern or the emotional motivators, as uh, as William Urie and, and Roger Fisher like to say, the, the, but they're, they're, they weren't interested in that. They, they, 
they put, put their stake in the ground, they anchored and they would not move off of their post, right? So if the other sides get frustrated with each other, both sides get frustrated, they may do what is not in the interest of themselves or the other party and just walk away from it. So that's the risk of doing what I think is happening here is this gamesmanship. But we'll see if he can if he can chip off a, a little bit of money from it. Um, he sees what he sees from this is he's creating value for himself from that four million four billion dollar mark or whatever it was. He's create with every with every little chip that he that he uh, takes away. He's creating more value for himself and devaluing the company. Yeah, I just find it so interesting, and I just wanted to get your perspective on it because it's literally happening as we speak, and mm-hmm. you know they're always having that conversation. Um, so this is really awesome. Hey, uh, so Eric, you know I just appreciate the immense value that you're brought in today, just talking about you know negotiation techniques, the characteristics, what you need to be preparing, and it is an art and a science, and then being able to really dive deep into that uh, for for our audience, I really appreciate that. Eric, how can our audience reach out to you, be part of what you got going on, my man? You can find me at uh, ericgislison.com. That's E-I-R-I-K, a strange Icelandic spelling of Eric with two I's. Uh, E-I-R-I-K-G-I-S-L-A-S-O-N.com. You'll see I have two blogs. Unreal Estate is one of my blogs, which is focused uh, primarily on real estate goings on and and looking at the industry um, and helping clients and agents navigate the industry. And then Growing the Pie is the other blog that's on that site. And that's my negotiation blog. Um, I'm also at Eric the Expert on Instagram. And there you can find uh, links to my to my videos uh, and reels on Instagram, which uh, you can also link to my YouTube channel, which you'll find my my videos there as well. But on those videos, I I take little I take tactics and uh, one 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 uh, one you know um, video I do is Tactics Tuesdays, where we just discuss a, a different tactic each week, um, or I'll I'll just talk about a negotiation topic, or I'll talk about listening or asking questions and do a two or three minute video on that. So at Eric, the expert is a great way to find me on Instagram. Um, and, uh, and from there, you can find me on Facebook as well. Awesome, guys, those links will be in the description below. So make sure you click on that, make sure you consume his content and be part of what he's got going on. Eric, is there any last words of wisdom that you'd like to share with our audience before I let you go? You know, I, well, I will say, I, it's, in listening to your podcast, which I've done for, uh, for, a, for a long time, it's interesting to hear what your guests are saying, especially over the last several. And these key terms, this idea of collaboration, teaming, interests, um, communication, empathy, emotional intelligence, the why, um, setting expectations. These are these are key words and phrases that I hear your your um, your podcast guests saying often. What, no matter whether they're coming from marketing or or leadership or whatever whatever uh, uh, form or or place that they're coming from, these are the words that they're using, and it it warms my heart because that is what we're ta- this is where we are. This is what collaborative negotiation is. It is really maximizing your gain by listening to the other side, by hearing the other side, by hearing your client, by asking questions so that you can gain information and gain intelligence to become better at finding these exchanges. So um, I love what you're doing and and I appreciate the fact that you had me on, um, but I'll continue to listen and listen to all of what you and your uh, and your wonderful guests are saying each each week. Awesome. And Eric, I really appreciate that. But also, I really appreciate the immense value that you brought today. Guys, that is Eric, my friend, the emperor 
of negotiation. <laughs> Guys, that, like that is Journey with Christian Davis podcast. Until next time, remember, be uncommon if you can. Yo, this is Christian D. Evans, Journey with Christian D. Evans podcast. We thank you so much for listening to this amazing episode. If you feel and you know that this was valuable to you, please show some love to our amazing guest by liking this, by commenting on this, by making sure that you do a nice five-star review and just show some love to our guest. That would be really awesome. Also, make sure you share this with a friend, a family, a colleague, someone that you believe would bring value to their life right now. Uh, and guys, we just want to say thank you again for just being part of our community. If you want to have more resources, don't be afraid. Go to christiandevans.com. You can actually schedule a phone call with me or you can send me an email at christian.evans at beuncommonifyoucan.com. That's christian.evans at beuncommonifyoucan.com. Always love to hear some feedback and let me know what is the number one or two things that you are struggling in your business and your life and we'll make sure we have those conversations. Guys, that is Journey with Christian Davis podcast. And until next time, remember, be uncommon if you can. Cheers.